0: Head to my website, SimonMundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
0: This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists and philosophers we discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better sport is a metaphor for life and in this podcast i aim to prove that right I always like hearing from you, so the best way to get in touch is via my website simonmundy.com or I'm at SimonMundy on social media. In this episode, I'm talking to the remarkable John McAvoy, who turned his life around in the most astounding way, and the theme of the episode is how our environment shapes us. John McAvoy, how are you?
2: I'm really well thank you. Yeah, I'm really well. I'm currently in um in Lake Annecy in France and I've just started the process of training for next season. So yeah, I'm I'm good. I feel in a good place. Um I'm just not that fit at the moment, but I'm I'm in a good place so it's just building that fitness back up and enjoying the scenery and the beauty of where I am.
0: You're out in the Alps, out in France, training, you know, night sponsored athlete, doing various work for charities. Do you ever look back and think, oh, where did it all go wrong?
2: Or where did it all go right? That's the question. It's, uh, one, I'm very, I, I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for where I'm at at the moment. Um, and I know it sounds quite cheesy and a bit cliche, but every day I remind myself how fortunate I was to stumble across sport. Without sport, I generally wouldn't be in, in the place I am at the moment physically in regards to the, the environment I'm currently in now in, in in the French Alps but just the amazing incredible people that I've got in my life and I've had in my life the last few years in particular that sport brought into my life and I'm so fortunate and so blessed that I was so lucky that I, I found I had a, a gift when I was 26 years old which has led me to to being where I am today in my life and yeah I'm just every day I remind myself of that, Simon, because I think it's very important that you, you, you shouldn't forget where you come from in life to where you can end up getting and where I am at the moment and being in that moment and present and being really appreciative of where I am and how fortunate I am to to be happy and contented with my life.
0: Absolutely. I totally get why you would be grateful. I mean, the journey you've been on is just unbelievable. And We'll dig into that. But just um, in terms of, you touched on your fitness. So you are an Ironman athlete and, you know, you've world records in rowing and all this kind of thing. But you said that you're, you're building your exercise volume up. So in percentage terms, if 100% is you at your fittest, where are you now in percentage terms?
2: I'm probably about, uh, I would say probably about 40, 40%. For seven days a week, I train. Some days will be much lighter than others. At the moment, it's a bit challenging with the swimming because most pools are shut. So I've been riding, running more. But yeah, like yesterday was a four hour ride. Today was a 90 minute ride. And then later on this evening, I'll do an hour run. And then tomorrow, I've got like an hour and a half run. And then I was meant to swim. I won't be able to swim. So I'll probably just do an hour on the bike. So I'm probably training at the moment about 16 hours a week. But that will go up. That goes up to about 35 hours by the time I get to like February, March time a week. So it's quite a little, It's a full-time yeah. job.
0: I tell you what, if you're going to be cycling anywhere, though, particularly during lockdown, the Alps is where you want to do it. I mean, it must be just awe-inspiring.
2: Mate, I, I, I would honestly say in my whole life, like I've had some very pivotal moments that have really dramatically changed the trajectory of my life from extremes. And I can honestly say, mate, when, when I come out here, in my whole life since I've been on Earth is 36 years, I've never felt contentment and happiness in how the mountains make me feel. Like mm. I genuinely have this love for for the mountains, and I think that probably comes back to one being immersed in nature. But mm. because I wasn't free for so many years, I've never experienced freedom like cycling my bike in the high mountains. Like, and, and I'm not an emotional person. Like I don't. I wouldn't say I'm I'm overly emotional. But I've had moments where I'm riding my bike on my own and I've been out for five, six hours, and I'm climbing up like a two, two and a half, three, three, nearly three thousand metre climb. And I've literally started feeling like I'm gonna well up because I feel so free and and it makes me feel so alive and so happy and joyous. Like I I t I, I can't express it into words how much I, I love this place. And how it just makes me feel like I'm alive, like I, yeah, and yeah. That, and I think that probably ties back into all the years where, well, I wasn't free for nearly a decade of my life on Earth, like I was, I was yeah. in a cage. Like when you're riding up these mountains and you're in nature and you're immersed in it, you realise how insignificant a lot of the noise mm-hmm. is in the world. Like I was riding up a mountain with my friend in the summer, and that mountain's been there for, for millions of years, and hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have walked up it. But the mountains stay consistent. It's been there. But all of these other people have been transient on the earth. And it and it makes you realize, in some regards, how insignificant we actually are in the bigger picture of the universe and the world. It just highlights and heightens to me that you, you have to live your life in a way where you feel joy and happiness. And the most important word is contentment. You need to feel content in what you're doing in life, whatever that is. I'm 36 now. It's, it's took me to this point in my life to really feel that, like I'm, I'm genuinely really happy in my life.
0: That's beautiful. Let's track how you found it then. Let's go back to the start. And I know in terms of your story, really it starts before you were born, doesn't it? Yeah.
2: yeah, so yeah, my life has been very unusual before I even took a breath on this earth. So my, my biological father died next to my mum in bed. And my mum was eight months pregnant with me. And he had an undiagnosed heart condition. He was a workaholic. My mum said that he used to work 16, 17 hour days. Um, he he, he ran multiple different businesses, then he owned nightclubs. So then he was working in the day, running his businesses as a property developer. And at night, he was going to the nightclubs, wasn't coming home until two in the morning, and a few hours sleep, getting up next morning, back on the building sites, making sure everyone was working. And one night at 38 years old, him and my mum had been married a year. My mum's eight months pregnant with me, like I said, and, and he, he goes to sleep and, and he doesn't wake up. One month later, my mum had to then deal with being a single parent and I'm born into the world. So when I was born, my earliest memories of a child being being little was I was loved, I was cared for. My mum had loads of sisters, so I had loads of aunties around. I had my big sister, I had a lot of females in my life as a child um, looking after me and I was like that little blue-eyed boy, could never do any wrong and I was so happy and it was only when I started going to primary school that me having a dad never, it didn't mean that I didn't, I didn't know what I was missing because I just thought it was normal to have all these women bring me up. But when I went to primary school, obviously children would start asking me where my dad was because everyone's talking about how strong their dads are and they've got the best dad in the world. And people used to tease me at school. I remember it. And I went home and I asked my mum and I said, like, where's my dad? And my mum explained to me, she sat me down and she said, like, your dad died. And I would always say, Simon, I was was very, as a child, I was very inquisitive. Like I would say, why is the sky blue? Why is the sea blue? I'd always want to know. I was one of these very annoying little children that just wanted to know answers to everything. So when my mum explained to me that my dad had died, I wanted to understand what that meant. And my mum explained, she simplified it. Your dad's gone to heaven. When she told me this, it really did. And I, I know I was young, but it did have a very powerful impact over me. Because as I got a little bit more older, about seven or eight, I loved history as a child. And my mum used to take me to like the Natural History Museum. And every month there used to be these like little magazines that they used to sell in the news agents called Discovery Booklets. And they was about like, they were for children. And it was like you would build puzzles about like Napoleon and Henry VIII and then Anne Boleyn. And you'd put all these puzzles together and they were like little quiz books in there. And I could just remember being a little kid and developed this real fascination for history. And as I'm reading about all these people that had died hundreds of years before I was born, they died like my dad had died. But I was reading about them in the present. Like they had done something with their lives of significance where they were remembered. And obviously I'm I'm a young kid. I don't understand what legacy is, but I understood that these people died before I was born and they had done something with their lives, like they had achieved something. And that sparked something inside me When I got older, I didn't just want to be average. Like I wanted my life to have a significance. I wanted to achieve something with my life. And sort of how this started in manifesting itself out was again my fascination around stuff um, was British Telecom. And I know it sounds quite bizarre when I tell people this, but when I was a little boy growing up, these British Telecom adverts used to be on the TV all the time. And then when my mum used to take me like out in the car round to my aunties and uncles, every street corner had a BT phone box. And then when we ran round to my aunties and uncles' houses and my mum's friends, they all had a BT landline. Like, they had a complete monopoly over the telephone communication system. And I said to my uncle one day, how much does British Telecom make? And he said they make billions of pounds a year. And from that moment, my dream when I become an adult was to own British Telecom. And I wanted to be a businessman, and I wanted to own BT. That was what my dream was. And if anyone asked me, said, what do you want to do when you get older? It was, I want to own British Telecom, and everyone used to laugh at me. But that is what I wanted. And, And I really think it said a lot about my character that I was a ferociously ambitious little child, that when I got older, layering on the fact that I knew I wasn't going to live forever, and then layering up, then I then attached success to money and having lots of money. Then... What happened next, you can only really say was the perfect storm for me to go down the wrong path in life.
0: That wanting to take over BT, what was that about, do you think?
2: I, I think like this was what one of the biggest issues when I was little, how it manifested itself. I think by growing up in the 1980s, and I'm, obviously I'm showing my age, but that sort of fixation on the eye, the individual, it was all about the acquisition of wealth and. See to me, money was never about buying stuff. It was never about accumulating stuff—watches, cars. Really, it was. It was always about like the goal setting was. To me, money was was a gauge of my success in society, yeah. and the more I acquired, the more successful I was going to be deemed to be a person. It was my own personal goals of accumulating wealth because to me, wealth meant I was successful in my life, and I thought by having lots of money would be my my legacy in life that's what i thought i thought when when i'm no longer around if i amass all this money when i go everyone will go he was a very successful man he did this and he did that
0: and that's a common idea that's a very widespread idea
2: totally yeah totally it and again mate it took me to i was 26 years old to have that awakening of what, what i put my value system on what was important in life and what really isn't that important in life
0: yeah, right. Let's skip forward then. Now we've established that it was about it was about money in the scorecard, and actually, that's not very different to anyone else. But then, at the age of eight, a man came into your life that meant you did take a bit of a detour, if you like, from the normal way of of trying to accrue money. That was the the start of it.
2: Well, like, yeah, to, and again, to give you some sort of context, like, my mum worked in a florist, she worked incredibly hard, like, to make sure me and my sister had everything. She loved her job, but she worked her fingers to the bone to make sure me and my sister had a really good childhood. So when I was eight years old, this man, and again, it was very unusual at the time because other than uncles, there was never, I can never remember a male coming into our home ever that I didn't know. And one evening, this man knocked at the front door and he came into our house. And I remember being in awe of him. He had jet black hair, white teeth, big watch on his wrist, immaculately dressed. And he came in and I was looking at him and we went into the living room. Didn't know who he was. He was a stranger. And I used to be a bit shy as a child, like I didn't really engage. And my mom, and he and he, he asked me to go and make him a cup of tea. And I went into the kitchen and I put the kettle on and, and I made him some cup of tea. I gave it to him. And then I was just sitting in the living room as he was talking to my mum and my sister. And again, I was too young. I, I didn't really understand what they were really talking about. And then when he left, he patted me on the head and he gave me paper money. Gave me a twenty pound note. And he was the first adult to ever give me paper money. Um, and I, like when Christmas comes around, like I, I just used to get Christmas presents and birthdays. I used to get birthday presents. No one actually ever, ever gave me money. So when he gave me this twenty pounds, it was the most money I'd ever been given. Patted me on the head. and He said, "You're a good boy." And he walked out. And when he left, I asked my mum who he was, and my mum explained when she was sixteen, she got married to that man before she married my dad. So my mum was in her sort of late 20s, early 30s when she married my dad. But when she was 16, she grew up with this guy, Billy Tobin, um, on a council estate in Peckham. They got married at 16. And actually, my sister wasn't my biological sister. She, she was my stepsister. And that was her real dad. And again, I'm too young. It was, it was too, too much for me really to process what my mum was saying. But what he started doing, he started coming around to our house more frequently and that wasn't to have a relationship with my mum. It was to take my, my sister out. So he used to come round, pick my sister up, him and my sister would go out. And then he would ask if I could go. I think my mum didn't want me to miss out because she worked so hard as a florist. And, and my sister was going out and doing going to these nice places and restaurants and going on, having these experiences. So when the opportunity arose for me to join my sister... I, don't think, I think my mum felt bad. She didn't want me to miss out on an opportunity to have a nice time because obviously she was going to work and she might not have been able to afford for me to do these other things. So Billy started taking me out and my sister. And again, we'd, like I said, we'd go to the restaurants and it, it'd take me to the theatre. And we'd do this thing. I'm still a little boy. I'm like eight, nine, ten years old. And what started happening, he started taking my sister out less and started taking me out more. And to the point where he stopped taking my sister out And he started taking me out. And people treated him very respectfully. He didn't queue for things. He had very nice stuff. And he always, always spoke about money, always talked about how much money things cost, always had 50 pound notes in his pocket in cash. And again, being a little boy and you're seeing money. I'd never seen 50 pound notes until these pink pink pieces of paper like I didn't didn't even really know they existed until I started seeing him with them and the way his persona he was charismatic he's very magnetic people were drawn to him when we'd go out people treated him differently with respect and it was only when my granddad passed away and me my mum my sister and my mum's twin sister went to clear out my granddad's flat that my granddad had this cupboard with drawers in it in his bedroom there was these Envelopes, and I pulled the drawer open, saw these envelopes, put them on the bed, and started going through these these newspaper clippings, and they were from like the News of the World, the Sun, the Mirror, and Billy was on the front page of them all. And the reason why I never saw Billy till I was eight years old was because when Billy come around our home that night, he'd just been released from serving sixteen years in prison for armed robbery, and Billy was one of the most prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom. Um, he had five acquittals at the Old Bailey. He'd been shot by the police two times. He was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old in the 1980s, which was a lot, lot more than a million pounds worth today. Um, And and he was literally at the top end of the tree of organised crime in Great Britain in the 1980s. And I then started connecting up all the dots, Simon, all the money, the way people treated him, the way how all these other men that I was mixing with conducted themselves that were most likely all engaged in organised crime.
0: Do you think he thought that he could bring you into his world from the start or from early on? Do you think that was part of the plan?
2: I I think there was a mixture. Like, So again, years later, my mum told me a story about him. When he was a young man, when my mum married him, he was a plasterer and he watched his father get murdered in front of him and his father got stabbed to death by three men in a pub. And my mum said that that had a profound impact over him as a young man, that he went from being like a relatively normal guy that went to work to end up going on this journey of becoming a hijacker, where they used to hijack lorries into full-scale armed robberies, cash and transit vans, where they were stopping them on motorways and cutting them open and, and stealing hundreds of thousands, millions of pounds. Now, I think, and he said he used to say this to me all the time, he, because he never had a son, and he he had my sister, but he never had a boy, and and I just do genuinely think we developed this relationship because I didn't have a dad, and he never had a son, and the way that he saw his father get killed, I just I just think it was a, it was this perfect storm of he saw me as some sort of like protege for him, he never had that child like that boy, and I think the way that he developed and sort of got immersed into organized crime himself, he had, like, mentors. And I know this is going to sound bizarre to people listening to this podcast because it's going to be quite an alien world. But it was like he went on an apprenticeship himself as a man that wasn't really a criminal as a young kid, but then started hanging out when his father died with more serious criminals and ended up going on this sort of apprenticeship where he was being taught by all the criminals how to do these armed robberies and this organized crime and how how to not be detected. So I, I don't think he necessarily thought I was going to end up getting completely immersed into it. But I do think there was an element of him schooling me when I look back on that time. And I think as I started getting more older, it became more prevalent when he started realising that that was the life I was going to engage in. He started really guiding me more heavily into that world and and he took me further and further and further into it. So from being a young kid, by like a kid, a teenager, I was hanging out with some of the most senior organised criminals in the United Kingdom. And and I, and I can remember, like, years later, Simon, for instance, when I was in prison, there was an article written in The Telegraph. And I remember being in prison and I was reading it, and it was talking about how organised crime in Britain had evolved over since, like, the 1960s into sort of, like, the Craze and the Richardsons. And how, like, then it evolved into the 1980s to, like, organised crime become more around armed robbery. And then in 2000s, 1990s, 2000s, then evolved into drugs. And then when it went through the stages of, like, how organised crime went from the Craze and Richardsons into more armed robberies, they basically listed four men that they said had sort of been instrumental in how that that process of organised crime had evolved into armed robbery. And out of those four men, three of them were in my childhood. And and again, Simon, like... I again. It's, sometimes it's quite ironic but a lot of these sort of guys sent their children to private school they had the best education that you could imagine and most of them end up basically becoming involved in in armed robberies or selling drugs and they all ended up going to prison and it, so it just shows you that the environmental factor what a profound impact like even though these some of these kids that I know and I know now that are in prison still they had some of the best education you can imagine because of what they were going home to every day and how that that lifestyle was encouraged, how they end up, again, choosing that path like, like I did.
0: Mm. Something I'm really interested in is you talk about environment, for example, and people are easily get classified, for example, into good people and bad people. I always think of this, the quote of the guy who runs the National Rifle Association in America, and he says something like, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. So it's really easy, this binary good and bad. But if you think of someone like Billy or some of those other people that you had around you, it doesn't sound like to me like it was something innate. It sounds like it was just that various events happened and the environment that they were in led to them going down this, this path. If they'd have been in a different environment, they could have led perfectly normal lives.
2: I, I, yes, yeah, I, I I totally Believe that I, I I would say to you now, from my own personal experience, from the characteristics I had as a child, if if I would have been, if I'd have had a positive male role model in my life, that would have sort of directed me into sport or directed me into business. Like if I'd have had a Richard Branson or Seb Coe in my life as a kid, could I have gone on to be an entrepreneur? Probably. Would I have gone on? Could I have gone on and been an Olympic athlete? Probably. I, I, I had the ability. I had the mindset. Um, I had the drive, the ambition, the will. But as a child, I was only exposed to people like me, because again, you only know what you know yeah. by people that engaged in what they did. And I had that mindset. And again, it's it's something like again I know you said it, but you only know what you know, and what you can yeah. see is attainable. So I wasn't exposed to like Richard Branson or Sebco, but I was exposed to Billy and all of Billy's friends so i wanted to acquire wealth as an adult because i thought that was going to be success and i wanted to achieve something in my life and they showed me a way that they it it was obtainable they showed me a road and a path that it was attainable and then that path wasn't frowned upon it, it was actually encouraged um yeah. and then you start feeding into the sort of the whole anti authority anti system being as a young person And it's it's very alluring as a young person that when you see like grown adult men just have blatant disregard for any rules, regulations, laws, it's not applicable to them. As a kid growing up, you just get drawn to it like a a bee to honey. You just get sucked into it. It's it's very, very magnetising and it can pull you in. And that's why when I go in and visit young people in prisons, you see so much talent and ability. The way these young people's minds work, like they are entrepreneurs. They, but what it is, the product that they're selling is illegal. Now, if these young people were given another opportunity to, like, sort of work in the city of London, and you you taught them how to buy and sell shares on a stock market, their brains, they could, they can do it. They have the skills to do it, but they need to be shown that this is a possibility for them um, because they've got the drive, the will to want to do it. They want to set up their own businesses, they want, but they don't understand or they haven't been shown how that's possible for them. And they probably don't see enough relatable role models that people from their community that come out the other side of it and go and do these extraordinary things with their lives, these positive stories. They don't really see them sorts of people. They see more people that are hanging out on the street corner, driving around in a BMW on a council estate with a with a ten twenty thousand pound Rolex watch, and to them, that's a way out of where they're at.
0: At the start, you spoke about gratitude, and it makes me think of how grateful anyone who hasn't been in that environment can feel. Do you think then people are perhaps too quick to judge other people? I've mentioned to you previously that a guy I find quite interesting is this psychologist, former psychologist, Albert Ellis, and he talks about judging the behavior but not judging the person because it's like that saying, what, but for the grace of God, there go I, that type of thing. So, I mean, what do you think about people judging others quickly for the things they do, without necessarily factoring in that, well, if you were in that situation, you would probably have ended up in the same place.
2: Yeah, I've I, I, I've been very fortunate, for instance, over the years. But I've developed a platform um where I'm able to express my my story, and I'm, and, and I've I've gone and done I've gone and done sort of talks before to audiences of people that at the end, I remember one in particular, one lady come up to me, and it took me back a little bit. But actually, of all the praise I've ever received hers stood out more than anyone else's because she came up to me at the end of this talk that I did and she said to me do you know today she said I really thought I was gonna dislike you and and what you've what you who you were she said like but after listening to what you've said she went I totally understand how you've ended up in that situation because I I don't know whether I would have made the same decisions that you made if I was put in the same situation as you. And then she was very appreciative of her childhood and the opportunities and, and the access to the positive role models in, in which she was exposed to as a as a young person. And again, like when I come out of prison, Simon, I joined a rowing club. Mm. Like I, I can remember when I went into the changing rooms for the first time, and, and in this rowing club, it was full of barristers and police officers. There were some older rowers there that were judges. Um, and, and they're working professionals that worked in the city of London. And I, I, no one knew about my backstory. No one knew nothing about me. I didn't tell anyone about the records because I'm so worried that they might Google me and headlines mm. from some newspaper might come up. And when my story did come out, it broke down preconceptions because by that point, I developed friendships with people. I was going around their houses for dinner. And now I don't know whether if my story would have come out at the beginning and I would have joined, whether I would have been welcomed so openly. But what it did do to a lot of people at the rowing club in particular, it opened up their eyes that you can't judge people. Um, because if they would have judged me, they would never have given me the time of day. I would never have joined the rowing club, they would have just blackballed me out of the club, and I would never have developed those friendships with me. And and then they kind of they realised that in life, good people do do bad stuff. But it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, and I, and I think
2: that that had a profound impact over a lot of people, in particular at my rowing club. And, and I got a lot of that feedback back from them about how they used to prejudge people. And, and I've had it like I, I don't get it so much now, but I had a lot of judgment at the beginning. Um, even even when I was doing stuff like going to schools and prisons, and mm. people, some people would say, oh a leopard never changes its spots." Yeah. But obviously, the longer I've been out um, and the more work I've done, it's, it's abundantly evident that you can turn your life around and you can achieve things in your life and you can be a positive, productive individual in the world and you can have a positive impact over people's lives. I deeply regret the stuff that i done years ago. I really, really do. And I think that's been one of the biggest motivations. Like if I can stop other young people going down the path I've done because when those young people fail, they're not just destructive to themselves, they're a destruction to the rest of society. So if I can prevent one of them going on to do bad stuff, that that means more to me than anything physically that I achieve through sport. That's what legacy to me actually really is.
0: Yeah, totally. And that's a journey that a lot of people go on through life and it might take a long time. You start out thinking, what can I achieve for me? And then realise perhaps, well, a lot of people do, that actually the more you can give to others actually, where that's where the real treasure lies. That seems to be a, a recurring theme. And you mentioned the word society. So let's sort of get into then how you got up to speed in the criminal underworld if you like and you you talk about a moment where your stepfather was in the car with you and told you to look out the window and and made a comment about society and about how it functioned that again had a profound effect on you
2: yeah so like we we were driving and, and billy had this porsche 911 and it was a limited edition car and it was it was the engine was de-restricted; like, nearly two hundred miles an hour. Got it from Germany, and there was only, like I said, there was only there wasn't a lot of them in the United Kingdom, so it really stood out. This car, and I remember I was in the I was in the passenger seat of the car, and we was driving through this leafy suburb in Kent, and we stopped at a red um, a red traffic light, and he went to me, look out the window, and then I, I said, what do you mean? He went, look out the window. So again, I'm kid looking out what. He went, see all these people, they're all sheep. Basically, they get effed by the system and we eff the system. Mm-hmm. And he started setting up this this narrative about how corrupt the system is and how the system exploits like the working class and how like we exploit the system. And now to overlay onto this, when when you're when you're sort of Again, I wasn't engaged in these conversations, but when you're with these older men that are in their late 30s, 40s, and you're hearing these stories about like police corruption, corrupting the system. And I remember my stepdad always used to say to me, everyone's got their price. You can bribe, buy anybody. And, and he always used to say to me as a kid, everyone's got their price. He used to mess around and he said, what's your price? And then I would go, I haven't got one. He went, you have, everyone's got a price. You can buy anything. So again, these this narrative started really manifesting itself into me as a person and started affecting my views and the way that I perceived what the system was and what life was about. So then my interaction with the system was when I went to school, my teachers then become part of the system. So I wasn't, I wasn't in trouble with the police all the time as a kid, but my teachers were part of the state, they're part of the system. Um, and I really feel ashamed today. Like I feel so bad because some of my teachers at the school were amazing, and up to up to the point where like where I really started becoming more and more entrenched in these beliefs. I used to love going to school, and I loved learning. Like I said, about history, and my history teacher was Mister Evans. And hopefully, one of these teachers listens to it, Mister Vickers at Kelsey Park School. They they really I, I, they really stand out to me, Simon. Because yeah. like I. I just remember sitting in these classes. And I loved learning. I loved it so much. And but then suddenly, like Mr. Evans becoming an extension of the state, and he, he was he was authority. And and I started then pushing back on it and I started being ruder, more disrespectful. I started truanting from school. And and then I, I basically made decision. I, I remember being there and I was I was kind of looking at these teachers and they were telling me like when my GCSEs were coming up. If you don't get good grades, you're not going to amount to anything. You need to get good grades. And they were supportive. They weren't just saying you're just going to be cast adrift. You're not going to be able to do anything with your life. But I was thinking, really, like, if I get an A, A star, when I'm looking at these guys over here, they're not academically clever, but they've got apartments on the Champs Elysees in Paris. They're living in two, three million pound houses. They're driving Porsches. They're driving Bentleys. They've got places in the south of Spain. Like, you're telling me that that's not like. So he didn't. Compute, yeah, like, yeah, I was, like, so yeah. I, I just basically I'm not engaging with this nonsense anymore, and that was where like the truancy from school was started becoming really heavy um, to the degree where I was I just wasn't going to school at all, and yeah. and and sort of again, Billy kind of knew what I was doing, and he didn't really try to prevent me. My mum just used to get so upset, and she used to just really desperately tried to sit me down and I, and I remember like she said to me this always rings like rings in my head sometimes when she said that you you I was an accident waiting to happen and she said you're if you live your life in the fast lane you will crash and burn and you will become exactly like he become but you're listening to your mum and you then listen to a, a man that's he's got everything that you want when you got older Um it's very hard like my mum was fighting a losing battle. Sure
0: was there a definitive point and was it a gradual process or was there a a definitive point where you were you know full into it and then at what point did things start speeding up to the point where you first went to jail
2: one day I truanted from school and I was upstairs in my bedroom and Billy come home and I remember I I thought it was my mum at first and it wasn't and I looked downstairs and he looked up and saw me and told me to get, he would get back in your room. I thought, oh God, I'm going to be in loads of trouble here. Um, and I thought he'd start going mad because my mum was getting upset that I wasn't going to school. And then he called me downstairs and I'd never seen so much money in my life. Like, up to that point, I'd never seen so much money. He's literally, the whole kitchen table had a mountain of money on it, cash. And I was just like, my eyes just just lit up. Now, that was when... I was kind of like 15 years old. That was the exhilaration then, because then I, I I saw all this cash and I thought, I, I want that. That's what I want. And then my mum then got really upset that I wasn't going to sit my GCSEs. So I basically, to keep my mum happy, I went and did my GCSEs. I just turned up on the day and sat the exams. And I remember when I went to pick up my school results, my head of year, Mr. Vickers, was in the assembly hall, and I was the last pupil to turn up to pick them up. And I remember he had this big envelope, and he went to me, Do you want to open them and see it? Do you want me to read what you've got? And I said, You tell me. And I just remember he, he opened the envelope and he pulled out all these pieces of paper and he looked at me and he went, If only you would have applied yourself, what you could have done. And I, I still managed to get relatively like decent grades because I didn't do any coursework. Yeah, yeah. And then he said to me, What are you going to do? And I lied and said I was going to college. And at, and at this point like he knew he knew what my family home life was like and he like in regards of like he, he kind of got a sense that if I if I basically fell off the radar I was probably going to get involved in crime and and, and he, he said look do you need any help and I said no and, and he gave me the exam results and I walked down the end of my school drive and I ripped them up and trapped them in the bin and and that was kind of me I thought I'm not engaging with that and and I and I always feel it's it's quite hard for me to talk about this part because, again, I feel quite ashamed what I'm about to say. But that little ambitious boy um, that wanted to achieve something in his life, that suddenly I see a way to do it. Um, I went and bought a firearm when I was 16 years old and my stepdad found out I did that and he was so concerned and worried that I was going to start running around with guns at 16 years old that in his head then it was, it was safe for me basically to commit crime with him and go and do stuff with older people than people my own age. And and that was it, Simon. That, that was literally 16 years old. I was then completely immersed 100% into that world of organised crime. And and I look back on it sometimes, mate, and, like, they like, – again, I feel embarrassed saying it now, but I, I used to have a very good memory as a kid of memorising car registration plates. Uh, like, I don't know why, but I just did. So, because I was so young – I would never stand out in a crowd. So basically, my role was to drive around and case out security vans, making deliveries to banks and building societies, and then counting how much money was taken into the bank. And then I'd just relay that information on to all the criminals. And then I would go to like security depots with with a, with a camcorder and film the lorries going in to fill the depots up in the early hours of the morning in the woods on top of the depots in in like, in the suburbs. And then I would give the cassette tapes to all the criminals to look at and. And then I kind of realised that like, actually I'm not going to become rich by helping these people sort of make money. And that was when I then started doing it myself. And I got arrested when I was 18 years old for the first time ever in my life.
0: And straight into prison from that point?
2: Yeah, like I, I was remanded into custody because of my links to organised crime. My stepdad, they basically, it was very unheard of at the time. And there wasn't actually that many. But when you're under the age of 21 years old in Britain, you can't be kept with adult prisoners. You have to be kept in a young offenders institution. Um, but because the police believed that I was a high escape risk, I couldn't be kept with young offenders because there was no young offenders institution in the country that, was, that could, held, could hold Category A prisoners. So I was then um, transferred to an, uh, a male adult prison, maximum security in Milton Keynes. And that sort of just exacerbated the issue of me going into this environment around those sorts of people as a kid Um, and suddenly you're going in with all these international drug dealers and armed robbers and you're walking onto a prison wing as an 18-year-old child in this maximum security prison and all these men are like putting all this praise onto you to be on that level of security at such a young age. Then it starts feeding the ego even more. And often people say to me, how did you feel scared? Did you feel intimidated? And I didn't because, again, like when you're hearing all these stories of all these adults before you go to prison talking about all these other adults that were in prison, saying about like they, the way that they they never relented, they never broke the system, never broke them. I went in with that mentality as well. Like I was like the most disruptive, difficult person you can imagine in prison because I had no respect for the prison officers, I had no respect for the system. So when they put me in prison, I was very rebellious. And again, you you go into an environment with, with with older men, and they're giving you all this praise, so it kind of just exacerbates the issue again.
0: Yeah. And then you ended up spending a year in solitary confinement, which is obviously pertinent considering what everyone's been through now in terms of being locked down and everything. But it's, it's fascinating how that was, for you, a way of retaining control. Just quickly explain that because actually as well, that's that decision, as out there as it was and as almost self-punishing as it might seem to be, that actually was crucial for your development as well, in terms of how things have since panned out. Which is, it just shows you—you you just don't know how things are going to go, do you? No,
2: you don't. And I—and this is this is a part of my life where I've pondered, I've tried to psychoanalyze myself and and the way and look at life as again from that overview perspective. So, yeah. the story that I'm about to tell you now is the absolute catalyst, should I say, in the regards of how my life is today. So, as a 19-year-old. I was transferred out of an adult prison because they downgraded me from a Category A prisoner to a, um, to a, then I could go into a young offenders institution. And when I turned to the when I turned up at the young offenders institution in Buckinghamshire, they basically said to me when I was in reception that I was going on a wing. And then when I went up to the wing, the prison officers, after two days, come to my cell one night and they they said we want all your clothes and they wanted to basically strip me off and put me in this bright yellow and blue suit. So when I walked around the prison estate, other prison officers could identify me as an escaped prisoner because they said they wasn't used to holding X category A young offenders. So they believed that I was going to try to escape from this young offenders institution. So again, being that very rebellious, hateful person towards the state, the system, when they wanted to take my clothes, I refused to give them my clothes. Now, when you're in prison, you don't win those battles. So they took me to the segregation unit they took my clothes. They put me in this yellow and blue special suit so other prison officers could identify me as an escape risk. And then I was confined to cell, which means segregation, for seven days. So when the seven days was up, you're in a tiny 12-by-six-foot cell. You've got a cardboard chair, a cardboard table, a metal bed, and some foam on the metal bed, and that's it. And it was like an old Victorian sort of prison. So after the seven days was up, they come to me and they said... When you go on the wing, McAvoy, because now my name wasn't John anymore. No one calls you John because I'm not in an adult prison. So it's my surname, my prison number. When you go on the wing, you're going to be a wing cleaner. Now, again, going back to the stories that I heard from my stepdad and all of his friends about when you go to prison, you don't do what they tell you to do. So when they asked me to be a wing cleaner, I then said, that isn't going to happen. And they said, what do you mean? You refuse another law forward? I said, when I go on the wing, I'm not cleaning up after you all day. So they put me back in front of the governor and the governor gave me another seven days confined to cell. So when he did that, I remember when he did it, Simon, he smiled at me and he said to me, you're in my world, we're not in your world. And they put me back in that segregation cell. And I remember I was so angry. And when you're in segregation, they can't stop you from reading books. So a librarian would come around with a little trolley, you could pick books off it and I just picked this book by Nelson Mandela. And when I was reading this book, there was a passage in it. When he was in prison, he used to smoke tobacco when he first went to prison. And he realised one day that the prison officers was using the fact that he smoked tobacco as a way of control because then they could stop him from smoking fags if he didn't do something. So he stopped smoking because he said, I'm going to take that control away from you. So as a young man that was 19 years old, that was full of hate, I thought, if you think by putting me in this tiny little space is a punishment, I will take it away from you. So when they come to me after the, sec- the, the, the second seven days was up and they said, you're going to go onto the wing now, I said, I'm not going. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not going. I'm, I'm standing here. And that was where I spent the next 365 days locked in a 12-by-6-foot cell. And, they, and I remember they, they wasn't used to dealing with it. You could see like, they didn't realise. I think they didn't realise how long it was going to go on for, nor did I. But I can remember Christmas coming round. This prison officer come to me on Christmas Day, and he opened up the cell and he said, "Look, John." He went, "Do you want to use the phone? At least use the phone to speak to your mum to say that you're all right because you've you've not spoke to anyone in months." And I said, "No," because to me it, it was like they were trying to see if I was strong or if I was weak. And I know they wasn't. Like when I look back on it now, but at that moment when I was in that moment, that's what I thought. And I thought, "I'm not going to break. You're not going to break me." So when I was in that cell. I needed to feel alive, Simon. Like I didn't want to just exist. Now, I never done any sport as a child whatsoever. But when I was in this cell, I just started exercising. I I I don't know what triggered it. I didn't do it to become an athlete. I didn't do it to get a six-pack for aesthetics, to get fitter. But when I started doing these prison cell circuits, they made me feel alive. Like I felt like a human being. My heart rate was up. And obviously I didn't realize at the time I didn't understand what endorphins were, but it just made me feel like I was a human. And and I got into this routine and I started doing burpees, press ups, step ups, burpees, press ups, step ups, sit ups. And then as the months and weeks progressed, I just did more and more and more. And eventually I would do like a thousand of each exercise a thousand press ups, a thousand squats, a thousand burpees. And that would take me like an hour and a half. And then I would then read for the rest of the day. And then I would never lay on my bed in the day because I never wanted them to think when they looked through my flap to do their checks that I was sleeping my prison sentence off. I wanted, and, and it was me again, wrestling back control of my body and my mind. Like I thought, you can take everything away from me, but you cannot control what I'm doing in this tiny little space. And after a year, they open up the cell door and they just let me walk straight back out onto the street. And and I can be completely honest with you now, I was a hundred times worse than the 18 year old that they locked up when I got released.
3: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: Because you'd been through this process of actually strengthening yourself and showing yourself that you were you were tough, you hadn't broken, the system hadn't managed to take you apart at all, you were like, I'm bulletproof. Was that it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it, it was again it was feeding into all, all the role models that I had as a child. Yeah. So when, when, when I come out, obviously outside, people used to talk about the fact that how what I was doing whilst I was in prison. So when I got out, that fed into that narrative. So when I got out, people respected me even more as that guy that went to prison that didn't break. They didn't break me. I, I did that sentence how I wanted to do it, not how I was told to do it. I look back, it's so pathetic. Like when, when, when what
0: I take I take what you mean. In a, in a way though it is I have to say it also is quite impressive in terms of the discipline required because solitary confinement is considered to be the ultimate punishment in prison from what I know. And you did use it in some positive way for yourself. I totally get what you're saying in terms of you looking back and thinking it was a pathetic narrative, if you like, that yeah, you held yeah. in your head. It still was in a pretty impressive display of of resilience on one level.
2: Oh yeah, like yeah, like it was funny because a couple of weeks ago I was talking to a friend of mine about silent retreats, and I I'm I'm quite a social person. Like when I'm in a social situation, I speak quite a lot. She was talking about these these, these silent retreats, and she had gone on one. And she didn't speak for a week. And, and I, it made me think, because obviously I didn't intentionally mean to do this, but there were times where like, I didn't literally speak to people for months. Like literally I had no human contact other than open up my door, walk down to this hot plate, walk back to my cell and sit at my cell for the rest of the day, reading or exercising in the morning. And that was my life. But, I, I, but again, if I didn't make those decisions back then to start the exercising process and the journey, I would never have become the athlete that I've become today. And yeah. I didn't do it for that reason. Sometimes I'm not a religious person, so I don't believe in God. But sometimes you look and I go, is it destiny? Was it was, was my life meant to play out like that?
0: From that point then, I know you, you ended up out in Spain, didn't you? You were in your early 20s and it was parties, drink. I've seen a picture actually with you, with your, with your best mate out there, with your arm around him, you're both grinning, like living what you imagined at the time was the good life but then you came home. Was it just for a brief visit of friends and family, but then ended up being a, a bit of a longer detour than you'd expected?
2: Well, yeah, like I, to be honest, Simon, I had a bit of a moment the other day because I went back to Northern Spain um, two weeks ago. I went to Girona. Yeah. And the last time I was in Spain, I left at the airport. I thought I'd be back within a week. And when I went back to Spain the other day, that was the first time I'd been back since I caught that plane. And I went back 16 years later. <laughs> And it was up. quite when when I drove over the French border into Spain, I had this moment, and I thought the last time I left this country, my life was so different to where I'm now returning to it. It was it was quite a moment actually. I, I had a moment in the car, and I was like, "Wow." It was actually, it emotional? It actually quite was to be honest. Yeah, it was. It, it was just what what hit me. I know it sounds bizarre, but what hit me is when I started looking at the road signs in Spanish and driving through. It just took me back to driving to that airport. In 2005, leaving Spain thinking I would only be back to Britain for one week. I left as a criminal and I come back the other day in Northern Girona as an athlete. Yeah. Filming some content, riding my bike, running and, and, and meeting the Ironman world champion on the top of a mountain. In It's just bad sometimes. It is, is ride bad. It, it, it is bad. Out. If,
0: if, if I'd have interviewed that version of you now, how different would it have been?
2: Um... I, like, I, I wouldn't have been open and honest with you what I did, but I think if I would have met you out in a situation where we would have met each other, I think however you form an opinion of me today, I think you would have probably formed a similar opinion of me years ago. My perception of situations would have been different in the regards of I would have been far more guarded and I was far more, far more concerned about people's intentions with me. Like, was someone an undercover police officer? So the way I used to interact with people would have been a lot different. So like I would found it very hard if someone knew that I didn't know who you was. And if someone vouched if no one vouched for you, I would have been quite paranoid around you. But I think if we would have actually just met on a we'd have met on a beach, you would have probably come away from the situation. However you feel about me today, you'd have probably thought about me years ago. And I think that was what the big shock. Because when I when I was in prison, I remember like a lot of prison officers and probation officers really struggled to get their head around the way I was. Now, that was quite detrimental to me later on when I went for stuff like parole to get released yeah. because the parole board really struggled with it because they just expect you to go and be, again, preconceptions of how they think you're going to be and you turn up and you're something completely different to what they expect you to be like. But yeah, like but going back to the original question, Yeah, I I only come back to Britain for one week and then I end up meeting up with one of my stepfather's best friends, a man that come out of prison when I was 14 years old. The easiest way I can explain him, he was kind of like a modern day cowboy. Very well respected in that world. Tried to break out of prison two times. I've never ever come across anyone that lived as reckless as him. He lived on the edge. He was like a million miles an hour money high octane living living in the moment a fragrant disregard of anything so as a young person again growing up around him I was in awe of him and he was one of my role models so when I come back from Spain I'm in my early 20s he rang me up and he said can I can I meet you and I went and met him in a in a cafe and he basically asked me if I wanted to go and commit um a robbery with him or as as they say in that world a piece of a bit of work at the beginning I said no I said, I'm going back to Spain. I'm not, I'm not interested. And he, he told me the sum of money and he said it was easy. And that sort of missed again. I looked at it. It was like a calculated risk. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. And then I'll go back to Spain and no one even known I was even here. Um, little did I know, what I just said yes to was the best decision that I've ever made in my life. And I just walked into one of the biggest police, Metropolitan Police's surveillance operations in London. He had a hundred-man police surveillance team following him around, basically twenty-four hours a day, and I just walked straight into the middle of it. And four days later, I'm face down in southeast London with twenty guns pointed at me. I genuinely thought they were going to kill me. I, I genuinely did think that as well. I'm, I'm not being yeah. overdramatic. I just remember them running towards me with all these machine guns, um, in an ambush, and they arrested me. And yeah, my life just got hit by a by a train, and it just took a completely different turn of events than what i expected it to do when i come back to britain
0: so this was in elson wasn't it because i used to live in Eltham, actually funnily enough and yes, it was. yeah and um i've seen actually the video of i think you in the the car because you were driving off weren't you and then there is a bit of footage of you at that time and yeah,
2: um... yeah like so i when they 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 basically went to ambush us and i saw them before the ambush and i end up having a car chase with them, simon and i can remember all of these undercover police cars chasing me. Now, when I went to prison when I was younger, I didn't know what was coming. It was all new. But I remember having this car chase with these undercover police cars chasing me. I'm, I'm being deadly serious with you now. And again, this is not an exaggeration. I was fully prepared to die trying to get away from them because I knew what was coming. Like, I was not going back to that 24 hours a day locked in a cage. And and I I would have done anything to get me away from them. And and I remember when, when they, obviously, they did catch me. And I remember being in the back of that police car and the police officer that arrested me when I was a kid, when I was 18, he was on the arrest team to arrest me again. And he looked at me and he said, you haven't learned your lesson, have you? And when we were driving in his armed police convoy to the police station, I remember he said to me, look out the window. And I was obviously I was I was sort of looking out and I remember it was a hot sort of September morning. And there was all these like people walking around in the high street with like bags of shopping and and I just he went to me, you will not be seeing this for a long, long time. And what the story that I told you about with my stepdad with that car and he told he he spoke about sheep and stuff. Yeah. I remember sitting in that police car with those armed police taking me to the police station thinking I would do absolutely anything now to swap places with those people going into Sainsbury's and Marks and Spencer's. And then I I kind of, I, uh, I just knew that I was going back and I wasn't going to get out for a long, long time.
0: And then you ended up in the highest of the high of security prisons. So you were alongside Abu Hamza, the 21-7 London Underground Bombers. Really intense. But let's just fast forward a little bit. So how long were you in these incredibly high security prison before the next seminal moment, which was obviously when you got the news about your best mate? Because just to sort of add a bit of context from what I know, but as well, because even though you were looking out the window thinking, the people you'd written off as sheep, you'd want to swap places with them. Still, even though you are in this situation with some of the most well-known criminals, you still were not thinking at this point. I would, well, I actually would change my ways and become one of these people. So, yeah, what was the uh, the timeline between that and then that that moment that everything changed?
2: Yeah. So the the first two years I was in there, I went back to prison. Because of the risk level, they basically thought my escape was going to be imminent because they believed that I had the money, means, and capability to be able to escape from lawful custody. So, my escape must be made impossible. So, because of that, I was in, in the British prison system. There's something classed as a double category a, a high risk prisoner. And that means that you can't be kept in general population. You have to be kept in a special high security unit. Hence, why I was in there with the people that I was in there that you just, you just noticed they were a threat to national security. I was an intimate escape risk because they believed people would help me break out. Now, because of those factors that had then an effect on my sentencing, because obviously it had an effect over the judge. When the judge is sentencing me in the whole courtroom is encompassed by armed police officers. The courtroom's cleared out because of jury nobbling and and all these sorts of things like corrupting the jury and stuff. Mm. Um, So I get sentenced, I go back to prison. But then once you've been on that level of security, it takes a very long time to unwind out of it to sort of progress through the system. So I was basically in that level of security for two years. And then I dropped down to just the normal category A prisoner for another year. Now, what I realized was that they had basically made my escape impossible. Like that was not even gonna a consideration. Like I couldn't I could not physically get out. Like it is impossible. They make it impossible. But I realized that unlike the first time. Because I had a prison sentence, actually like a fixed term, I had a release date. This time, I had no release date. They could keep me in there for the remainder of my life if I didn't demonstrate that I had gone through a process of change. So the way you do that is by doing all of the reoffending behavior courses that you are asked to do by them. And then obviously, if you do all the courses and you tick all the boxes, at the end of that journey, they can't sit on a parole board here and say, you've not rehabilitated because they've asked you to do it so I went down the path of basically playing the game manipulating it just doing everything I was asked to do victim awareness I didn't want to change because to me again being brought up change to me was weakness it was the system that had broken you you're weak and I didn't want to change I had no desire to change no motivation to do it I was who I was that was my identity all of my friends were engaged in that world my ego was wrapped up into that, my reputation, my respect. People respected me because of the way that I was as a person, because of the way that I chose to my life, doing negative stuff like that. My stepdad used to say to me, you're only your name. Um, so if you're a grass, you tell on your friends when you get arrested, that's it, you're done. Mm-hmm. So that was my motivation not to change. And it was only when, when my best friend died, when I was 26 years old. And, yeah, I... <laughs> It just it was the it was it was genuinely like this moment that this i I had this whole epiphany that this this light bulb just woke me up in that prison cell. Because the way in which he died, like he died in the Netherlands committing a robbery. He was one of these kids that I just spoke about a minute ago that went to a private school, had the best education you can have. His mum and dad went to work. His dad was a black cab driver, his mum worked in the beauticians broke their back to send him to one of the best private schools in the country. But what they didn't realise that they did, they sent him to this private school where all these organised criminals sent their sons to school. So then when he's going on trips and at night after school, he's going around their houses, he's exposed to all these criminals that are multimillionaires and he's then looking at his mum and dad. Dad's a black cab driver working his fingers to the bone to put food on the table and put him in a private school. And he's looking at all these multimillionaires that are living life, million miles an hour, all these nice trips. And he got sucked into that life a little bit later on than I did. And it cost him his life in the Netherlands. One night, they went he went and committed a robbery. And as he was getting away, the car tire blew out on the car on the motorway. Car flipped. And he got thrown out of the car and broke his neck. And because it was quite a rare event that like four British criminals were in the Netherlands committing an armed robbery, it made news at 10, Simon. And I remember watching it in my prison cell in Nottingham and seeing the last moments of my friend's life on News at 10 on a CCTV camera in some little building society in the backwater of nowhere in the Netherlands. And it cost him his life and he, and he no longer existed. He never reached his potential in life. He never had children, never got married. He never really travelled and saw the world. He never, he never reached the potential in which he had in his body to do and then I just, I sat in that cell and I had this moment of reflection, how pathetic, what I thought was important in life was, and it isn't. And all the people that I looked up to as a kid, they were, they were literally dead or old men sitting in prison rotting. And I valued their respect. And I just looked at myself in that prison cell, and that, this little kid that grew up that went into British Telecom, I'm losing on an unimaginable scale. Like, I'm literally losing my life. I'm not a winner. I'm losing on an unimaginable scale. Even though I fought, I was in prison, I was fighting the system and, and I was winning, they won't break me. I realised how pathetic it all was. Mm. And I just wanted to do something else in my life. That moment, I knew that night that I, would, I, I just did not want that life from me whatsoever. But reality is when you're in prison, you can't just get up and walk away and go to a new place. Like I didn't have choice anymore. That, that gone, I'd given that up. So by me going to a prison office, I look, I've changed now. I don't want to do this anymore. Can you let me out? It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So then I'm suddenly stuck in a place where I'm, where I'm around criminals that don't want to change. So it's like being in a drug den when you're addicted to drugs, trying to get off drugs. It's nearly impossible. So I had to find something to remove me from that place. Physically and psychologically, I had to find something that could transcend me out of those walls even though I was physically stuck there and then the next part of my life it sort of everything just sort of dropped into place
0: it's amazing the we all have stories and narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about the world and obviously you had this really strong one and the edifice at that moment just completely crumbled so from there and you've spoken about the power of sport and you had a guardian angel it sounds like in, in Darren um who, who I'm interested in you sort of telling me about but yeah so just quickly into the the sport journey and and how fortunate you were to discover this immense talent that actually did lie within you that you'd sparked it alive hadn't you in that first time but really establishing quite how how talented you were in that area at this point
2: so yeah, going back to when we were talking about when I was 19 and that segregation unit doing those, those cell circuits. So when I went back to prison the second time, that was my strategy. That was how I felt alive in that prison cell. Went back through the same process every day, 90 minutes. Now, my, my awareness of my athletic ability. Now, bear in mind, I had no exposures really to sport as a kid whatsoever. I didn't know what an athlete really was. But when you're in prison, they have competitions over the Christmas And when I was in one of these maximum security prisons, every Christmas, it's like the big thing. And the winner gets a a tin of quality streak. But it's the prestige of who's the strongest and who's the fittest in that prison. You've got a lot of guys that have been in prison for like, they can be up in there for up to 30 years. But you've got guys in the gym every day pumping weights. Not that many people do cardiovascular work in prison. Everyone's more concerned about aesthetically how they look and how strong they are. (laughs) But I remember I signed up to do the fitness competition and I literally blew everybody away. Like it was just like it was like a CrossFit circuit, and no one even come close to me. And I remember the prison officer, and I remember him said to me, he said that that because it was a it was a nationally recognised fitness competition that he participated outside, so he obviously he could relatively see how quick I was in regards to other people. And then the next day, I went and entered the, the strongman competition in the prison, and everything was like power to weight, and it was bench press, squats, deadlift. And bear in mind, there's guys in there two times bigger than I am, like an extra half a foot taller than me, can lift ridiculous weight. But I was like the third strongest person per pound for my body weight. Now, I didn't really, like now I understand I had this ability. I was athletically very good at something, but I didn't really, at that moment, it was a bit of masculinity, a bit of strength, power, like I'm not weak in prison and and obviously everyone's praising you, but you don't see the bigger side of it. Now, when I then started getting on a rowing machine when I was 26 years old, I got on that by pure chance because I was doing it as a charity road because I saw some other prisoner doing it um, and it allowed me to have more gym time because you only get allowed to go to the gym between three, maybe four times a week if you're lucky. So you don't get access to the gym as much as you probably think you would do whilst you're in prison. So when I saw this guy down the gym seven days a week, I asked him what he was doing. He was was rowing this charity row a million metres, however long it took him. He was doing 5K a day, 10K, 12K, stuff like that. It was all added up. And I asked the prison officer if I could do it. They said, yes, get some sponsorship, which I did. Prisoners on the Wing sponsored me like 50 pence, 20 pence. I gave him the the charity form. And then he gave me a a special note. He wrote out to say I'll come off the wing whenever I liked in the day after I finished working and I'll come down into the gym. And I started rowing. And I rode the first million in a month. And when I was rowing, like, I used to look at the numbers on the screen and it completely transcended me out of prison. Like, I'd do, like, sessions for two hours and rode 20 miles. And, and everyone left me alone. People didn't speak to me. And then I used to visualise that I was rowing on the water. I'd visualise that I wasn't where I was. And obviously, you got all the endorphins. And, and it was just this very sort of, like, lifting experience. Like I said, it transcended me out of that place, that what I was searching for. It yeah. was like meditation. It completely yeah. blanked my mind for that two hours. So when I did the first million in a month, I thought, wait, I'm going to do another million, another million. And then the prison said to me, you do realise five million metres is equivalent to rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. So I thought it was a cool thing to do. And I thought there's more chance that the prison officers will let me keep going down if I say that I'm going to run across the Atlantic now, which they did. And when I was rowing for the fourth million metre after four months, the event happened one day. <laughs> I was rowing 10,000 metres and Darren Davis, the PE officer, walked behind me as I finished. And he looked over my shoulder and he went, that is really, really quick. And again, Simon, like when you're in prison, you're in a little bubble. You don't realise how good you are at stuff because you're not in the real world. Yeah. And he came come in two days later and he gave me all these pieces of paper and had all these and British records on the indoor rowing machine. And I remember looking at them. And I knew at that point I could already break some of those records. And I didn't think they were real. and. He said, no, they are. They're, they're real. And he just planted a seed in my mind. And I went back to my cell and I just thought, you know what, I'm going I'm to see if they'll let me do them. And I went back to him and he went to the prison governor, a deeply religious Christian man. And Darren went to him and Darren told me the story. Darren said, I believe if you allow John the opportunity to try to break some of these records, if he does it or he doesn't do it, I think this could be a massive moment in his life where it could be potential for him to really change the direction of his life and the governor said yeah I approve it and and, and again it's, I, I can't explain to you in that world what he allowed me to do in that environment was unheard of nearly like he really did go above and beyond because they believed in me and they believed it could help me turn my life around and Darren used to come in on his days off to sit with me to try to help me break these records. And he would bring me in books to read about athletes. And this was quite an important part, Simon, because bear in mind at this point, I'm 26 years old. I was never exposed to anything really as a kid other than criminality. And then suddenly I'm 26 years old and Darren's bringing me in books of James Cracknell, Lance Armstrong, and I'm reading about all of these athletes that were world-class. And when I'm reading these autobiographies, I had the same characteristics as a lot of these, these athletes, but I had never seen or heard of these people before. I didn't know who they were. I didn't realise that people that thought, I always used to think people that fought like me engaged in criminality with the same mindset I had, but I didn't realise like the will to win, the focus, the wanting to be good at something, the ambition, the drive. Like, I'm reading these autobiographies, these athletes, the the, the be able to suffer and push themselves. And then suddenly it's like, I've got these characteristics. And then I've applied them into something very negative. Now, if I switched them into something very positive, into sport, they could be massive attributes. Instead of destroying my life, they can help me build my life. And the first record me and Darren attempted was for the marathon on a concept to indoor rower, and I broke it by seven minutes. I can remember after I broke it, I was on the gym mat, and everything I wanted as a child like that I attached to wealth and money, I realized at that moment how I felt on that gym mat after breaking that record was everything I ever wanted. I wanted to be better than better than average and I wanted to achieve something in my life and I wanted to to sort of feel like I'd have accomplished something and I felt like that that moment and that's when I become absolutely consumed when I got released I was going to be an athlete absolutely absolutely consumed I would go down to the prison library I would start reading books on sports nutrition on training on heart rate zones heart rate monitors how to get my body strong Understand about sports nutrition. Like I wanted, I wanted to build myself and use my body as a vehicle to get me away from that negative, toxic life that I was engaged with, and help me break away from it once I got released from prison.
0: Amazing. Do you know what? When you said that, lying on the mat, feeling that this was the point at which you had reached and achieved everything that you'd wanted early in life, it sounded somewhat equivalent to that moment when you saw all that money on the on the table.
2: That's the thing, man. Like. That's, that's the one, like, obviously, like, you can't live your life through regret and you can't, like, you, you, you learn from every negative experience. And every experience I've ever been through in my life, I've always looked back on it now and gone, it's the best thing. Like, if you asked me the question now and you said, do you regret spending 10 years of my life on earth in, prison, in a 12-by-6-foot in cell, I regret what I did to do that, to go in that place. If you said to me, I don't need to do that, I would still want to go through that journey because I would not be the person I've ended up becoming today. Because those life experiences and the things I've seen and the people I've interacted with throughout that journey of being in prison for all those years, all those different characters of people, and how it shaped my outlook on life, I wouldn't change that part of it. I would go through that journey still. I'd still go through that that ten years, and because it, it's made me the person I am today. When you look back and you go, Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. could I have gone to the Olympics if someone would have picked me up? Maybe.
0: But I think that's very encouraging if you like for people going through any tough time that you just don't know you might look back and what at the time is is really brutal it might end up being the absolute making of you you just don't know at the time and obviously whether we leap to conclusions about what other people are like because of things they've done or leaping to conclusions about a period of time that we're going through at the moment we just don't know you know we're too quick to Except how our mind interprets things do you agree with that
2: yeah well, I, I totally do I totally do like and and even like the situation that we're all in at the moment like the, the situation with lockdown and COVID and it's had a, an impact over my life like it's made me I started assessing stuff like stuff I was doing people I was doing stuff with was I really happy was it really adding to my life or was it subtracting away from my life and I And I've always, since I've gone through that process of wanting something different, not change, wanting something different for my life, when I look at an individual or a person or a purpose or a company and I'm engaging with them, are they adding value to my life? Are they going to make me happy and content or are they subtracting? And then when stuff happened around the COVID situation and there was the lockdowns, it made me assess the people that I, because sometimes you can sleepwalk into things, relationships with people um, and you don't realise actually they're not really benefiting you that much. Like you're not really getting, they're not adding to your life. They're actually taking away. They're, they're making you feel negative about things. I made, I went through a process where I started cutting away from individuals and situations where it wasn't making me feel content. But I needed to go through that process like we're all going through at the moment. And I use it as a moment of reflection to do something a bit different with my life and tidy my life up a little bit. Because I've got to the point now where I'm uncompromising on my me being content as a human. Because I know it sounds quite morbid and my, some of my friends laugh at me when I say this. And But like, if, if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, I've probably got 40 summers left on this earth and 40 Christmases, that it, even though I don't really celebrate Christmas. But I'm not wasting those t- that time that I've got on earth. Because once it's gone, it's gone. Like I'm never going to be able to get it back. And I, I don't want to live my life through regret. I, w- I want to be content. I want to be positive to the world. I want to have a positive impact. I want to help people but I want to be content and I want to feel fulfilled and happy in my own existence on earth because we're not on this planet forever. We're not going to live forever. It's such a short minute amount of time that we're here, Like You can't be compromising on your happiness and your contentment in life because once it's gone, it's gone and we would never be able to get it back again.
0: Totally. I don't think that's morbid. In fact, I'm sure you're a fan of stoicism. I, I can, I'd certainly imagine so, but I interviewed, Ryan Holiday, who's um, a bit of a, a legend in the stoic scene, shall we say, and he carries around a coin in his pocket that says Memento Mori on it. Remember, you're going to die. Reflect on your mortality. The reason being exactly like you said, because it makes then that the precious moments that we have It makes them much more valuable because they're not going to go on forever. So yeah, I think actually reflecting on your mortality, if people did more of it, perhaps we would live life differently. And I think in terms of COVID now, obviously, it's incredibly hard time for people in terms of the illness itself, people dying, hospitals, job losses, all this kind of thing. But we just don't know that in 10 years' time, in terms of society more broadly, we don't know whether it's going to end up having a positive effect or a negative effect. We just don't know.
2: No, 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 we don't. We don't. And I do think out of this situation, there would be a lot of growth for people. Yeah. But I know personally through some of my friends that like it's the trajectory of their lives, they've, that, that moment of reflection and pausing, like they've looked at stuff and gone, actually, I'm not really happy doing what I'm doing every day. I don't want my life to go back to sitting on the tube. Like, uh, yeah. like cattle, going to work, doing a job I don't really like that much. Don't really feeling like I'm valued that much. Um, and it, and it's, it's been a catalyst for them deciding to go off and do different things. And I do think it will have a positive effect over some people's lives. I do understand on the flip side of that, that there's a lot of people that are struggling just to even put food on the table. Um, course, yeah. But, but yeah, I do think there are individuals where it can have a profound impact over their lives in a positive way, where it could change the, the way that the rest of their lives unfold
0: absolutely right as i said i'm i'm conscious of of, of your of your time john you're very uh, generous with it but so I, i'll rattle through a couple of the other bits so from this point so you've broken world records you've been a model inmate you knew that you were wanted to get out i know that you know when you got to your 5 year term limit you went to see the uh, the guy who sat on the parole board and he said you know what are you going to do with the rest of your life and and you said uh, You've got to be a professional athlete. And he basically sat back in his chair and laughed and said, I've never heard that one before. And unfortunately, what was it? It was another two years, wasn't it, before you got out
2: from that point? Yes, it was. It was. Yeah, I, so thought, another- I, thought, I thought it was going to be a shoo-in. <laughs> I thought I was going to turn up. And I thought if there, if there was ever going to be a, like a, hit, a hunt, run hit to get a pro, I thought I'd done it. And he just sat back and he started smiling. And he said, he, he actually, the words that he used, he said, my release plan wasn't based in reality. So that's
0: a really revealing comment, isn't it? Don't believe people who tell you things aren't realistic. And if anyone could prove it, that's you. So then you, you ended up, you did end up getting out though. And something I found really interesting, John, was when you spoke about it being, having this sort of sense of anticlimax when you got out, this moment that you'd built up in your head as, this huge moment that was going to come. And this, I think, is quite revealing for anyone as well because I've spoken to people who've dedicated their lives to winning, let's say, World Cups or or anything like that or people in normal life to getting a certain job or to getting a certain relationship and then it, they get it. And actually, hang on, I don't feel like I expected to feel. So I thought this was this was obviously, again, with you, it, it tends to be a bit heightened and a bit more dramatic than norm. But actually, this is quite a revealing Uh, a revealing feeling that you went through at this point as well
2: yeah it's quite it's quite um, an anti-climax if I'm honest like you you get told you're going to get you're going to get released and you kind of think it's going to be like this sunny magical day and you're going to walk out the gate and your life is just going to be amazing it's like ended finished that part of it's done and you go down to the reception and you fill all the paperwork in and they open up the gate and you walk out and it's raining and it's it's quite anticlimactic, like it isn't how you think it's going to be. Because bear in mind, for years and years and years, you fixate on a, on a date, you fixate on a date on a calendar. That's, that's, yeah, that, that's when you're going to get out. It's very important when you're in that situation that you also keep yourself in the present at the moment because if that date isn't for a long time, that can also sort of have a negative impact over you. So yeah. it, in my regard, it's all about keeping myself in the moment, in the present and yeah. being the best person I could be that day in that environment. That, that yeah. was when I made the decision to be an athlete. So, um, so yeah. it was about putting the building blocks in place. But yeah, like when, when I got out, it wasn't, um, it wasn't that sort of like incredible moment. Um, it, there was an element of relief. It felt like I could close the chapter on that part of my life um, yeah. Yeah. to a degree because it never really closes with the sentence that I got because, because I got a life sentence. I'm technically serving my sentence now in the community. Um, even though I've been out for eight years that life sentence will always hang over my head um, because you technically sign your life over to the state so at any moment if they believed that I was involved in any sort of criminal activity I could be recalled back to prison but people don't understand that with life sentences they just think why do people get out but it's because when you do get out you're on life license so they can recall you back but the, the actual part of when when I got out yeah it was one thing I would say, what, what did throw me a little bit was choice. Because yeah. I've always been quite a decisive person. Um, but when I first got released, it was choice. I wasn't used to having so much choice. And I remember going into shops and I could buy any colour I wanted. I'd go to a restaurant and eat any food I wanted. Um, and that that sort of threw me a little bit for a little while. Um, yeah. And also like the regimen of, of eating at certain times of the day, I had to consciously stop myself from eating breakfast at sort of 7am and eating lunch at 11.30am and eating dinner at 4.30am, 4.30pm, sorry. But I had to get out of that, because again, you don't realise you do start becoming institutionalised um, even though I consciously when I was in there tried to stop that from happening to me there are certain things where you don't even realise it's had an impact over you until you get out
0: yeah, yeah now we spoke about the impact of environment and I know you joined a rowing club immediately which you've touched on already and obviously you were welcomed into it clearly you had a lot of talent you know you, although you kept your world records to yourself but this was obviously really integral wasn't it and I think you may have said this already in terms of you were able to completely change the environment in terms of the people you spent your time with because you were now with developing these relationships with people who also valued sport. And this is the beauty power of sport. So you had all these new friendships, you would join the rowing club. How long after that did you write the blog that I've read where you came clean about everything?
2: So I was at the rowing club for about around four months four and a half months when I when I joined. Um so there was a couple of things. Like obviously because rowing is Lots of it's done on ergometers, so indoor rowing machines. Mm-hmm. People could see I wasn't some random guy that just wanted to suddenly learn how to row in a boat. Like they could see the numbers I was putting out, like they were quick. So, like, people were very inquisitive about my sporting background. Um, and I, I was trying to, again, be very guarded around it. But it's one of these things, isn't it? Once people really start seeing how sort of the raw talent that you've got and like, where's this guy come from? Why is he so good? I sort of, I found out that maybe someone may have found out about my past. Um, And then I just thought, right, I need to claim ownership of this. And and I spoke to one of my really good friends and me and him sat down and he said, look, you, you have to make a decision. Do you want the narrative to be how they want that narrative to be? Or do you want to take a bit of control around the narrative and explain it? And what it will be, it will be. They're either like you or they won't like you. Now, at this point, I was concerned because... I wanted my life to be different. I've developed relationships with these people. I loved the, the sport. I loved I loved everything about it. I loved the relationships that I did build up. I loved the club. And I was worried that sort of I would be shunned. So I wrote this blog and I published it. And it went viral around rowing, in, in British rowing in particular. And the response was incredible. Like, it was so heartwarming and touching, the support I, I, I was shown. And... And then what it actually did, ironically, people then really wanted to help me be successful and succeed. Um, and that was, again, one of the few times in my life where I had it where someone wanted me to be successful, not necessarily just for, for, for something that was going to benefit them later on down the road. Um, and, yeah, like the way I was welcomed in within the community, even more so after it came out, was, was 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 incredible. and And even though I don't row anymore... Like I've still got these relationships and, and that rowing club, London rowing club has been such a fundamental pillar of, of my life. And, and again, like when I got out, I just thought I was going to go to a sports club and just be an athlete. I didn't realize actually how, how that support structure would aid me in growing and developing and the people that aided me and developed me and, and, and supported me in that journey, how fundamental that would be to me Staying out of prison, me being a successful member of society, um, and 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 sort of carrying on on the journey that I've been on up to this date.
0: And it's an amazing journey. And so you said you don't row anymore. So you're an Ironman athlete. How did it go from there then to becoming like a – you're one of the only Nike sponsored athletes, Ironman athletes in the, certainly in Britain, aren't you? One of only two, yeah. is it? Yeah,
2: yeah. It's it's a very it's, <laughs> it, it's a very sort of like again the way sort of my life's unfolded. It's been yeah. it's, it's, it's been a quite a unique situation. But basically. I didn't know this at the time. So um, I one day randomly got sent an email to my website and, and my friend Terry helps me run my website. Um, so like when traffic comes to it, he basically filters it and any personal messages he sends send across to me and any sort of like any, any work stuff he will deal with. And then he'll come back to me and say, someone's asked, could you go to this school talk? Could you do this? Could you do that? And then he, he rang me up one day and he said, I, I've got something to tell you that could change your life. So I said, okay. I mean, what is it? And he went, right. If you could work with anyone in the world, who would it be? And he was teeing that up. And I was like, I can't think. And then he said, so we've had an email from Nike. And I was like, there's no way that's happened. And he said, I promise you, I promise you it has. So I said, forward me the email. So he forwarded it on, I read it. It wasn't very descriptive. It was basically hired. um, His name was called Dan Smith. He work, I work in sports marketing at Nike. I know, UK. I know Dan. I know Dan. Oh, oh, do you know him? Yeah, you know him? I know Dan. Yeah. Yeah, I know Dan. So, so we've become really good mates now. Like, invite me to his wedding and stuff. So he sends this email, and obviously, I don't know at the beginning how this sort of played itself out, and that, from the, so I think Dan is Nike. That's who I think yeah, sports yeah. marketing guy. So anyway, he basically says very short email. We would love to work with you. Have you got any contractual obligations to any other brand? And I didn't. I didn't really work with anyone else. We'd be interested in having a conversation with you. So Terry said, do you want to email him back or shall I? I said, look, I reckon it's probably best you do it because you're far more business minded than I am. Have a chat with him, see what he says. So he emails him back, goes quiet for months. And then obviously, I really wanted it to happen because to me, being a Nike athlete, is like yeah, the pinnacle yeah, 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 yeah. of being under that umbrella with like yeah, the bronze. Michael James. Jordan, yeah. yeah you're at the very pinnacle of, of sport, like yeah. some of the greatest sports stars that have ever walked the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me to come from where I've come from, to be under that umbrella meant so much to me that I really wanted it to happen. Anyway, Dan ends up re- responding back. It was like late December, early Jan. And he said, could I come and speak to the staff in Nike UK so they could get to meet me? So I went and done this talk in, near Soho. And then a week after that, they asked me then to go out to the Netherlands to speak at one of their big European conferences to 800 members of staff. So I, I agreed to do it. It allowed me to leave the United Kingdom because Nike wrote me the cover note to send to my probation officer. So she then let me leave the country because I said it was for work. So again, I got go into my probation office with this letter from Nike to say re request that John McAvoy can come out to Hilversham in the Netherlands to deliver this speech to our employees at our European headquarters. So when I go out there, I meet the European VP, European director, a marketing director of Nike. And he was basically like one of the most powerful men at Nike, but most most powerful man in Nike Europe. Then the story then starts coming out. So he was in an airport at Schiphol and he had opened up an English newspaper, which he never normally reads. And in the sports section, I did an interview in the Telegraph And he said he read half the interview. He put the newspaper down. He sent an email to Nike UK and said, find that man and sponsor him. And anyway, he's telling the story around the table with Dan and stuff. And then it all made sense. So when Dan gets this email, it was so out of protocol because normally like Nike have got scouts, they do all this stuff. And then suddenly one of the most senior men at Nike sends a direct email in and says, I want this man, get him. And and I want him that so obviously Dan, Dan didn't know what Iron Man was, he didn't know who I was, he knew nothing about me whatsoever, but he was the one that had to sort of get me in and stuff. Yeah. But it was basically Edgar reading about me in a newspaper in the Netherlands, an English newspaper in the Netherlands, waiting to fly out to New York from Skip Airport.
0: That's amazing. That is amazing, isn't it? It does have that preordained feel about it. So, right here we are. Basically, we're up to pretty much the present day. You know, you're a a Nike-sponsored athlete. You're a competitive elite Ironman athlete. But what I'm really interested in, as well, though, is is how your your currency, if you like, your values about what really is important has changed. Because what you had early on in terms of wanting all the money, the way you went about it, obviously, is uh, a little bit off the uh, the normal track, shall we say. But that is a very, very normal goal for people to have. Understandably, that's the system in which we live. But now, so you work with greenhouse sports, helping kids from disadvantaged backgrounds through sports. I know you nearly burnt yourself out at one point with the amount of times you were going into schools and doing all these kind of talks. But having valued money so highly previously, what have you learned along your journey? and And what is, in your opinion now, the greatest currency?
2: So... I made a promise to myself when I decided I wanted to do something different in my life. Money was my God up until the age of 26 years old. I valued everything through a monetary sort of lens. It was so detrimental and corrosive to my life. It destroyed my life. It cost my friend his life. It's My stepdad's never seen the light of day since 2004. Um, He's still in prison to this day. So because I've had that very negative interaction with what money is, I made a promise to myself that money would never be my God ever again. And I got released when I come out and I had nothing. And I mean nothing. I was sleeping in my mum's spare bedroom. All of the assets that I had before I went to prison, I gave them away. I had watches that I just, I didn't want. I didn't want to take anything from my past into my future so I just relinquished a lot of it and let go of it. And I went to rebuild my life from scratch in a new world, in a new life. And I I, I totally understand how people sometimes get submerged into the hamster wheel of the money. And, and, I, and I see it because the society in which we live in, it's like you need to have that car, you need to have that watch, you need to have a house, you need to have two kids, you need to have all these things. And that's going to make you feel complete as a person. And then what ends up happening, you become removed from who you are and you end up going into a world and doing stuff you don't really want to do to live up to that image of what you're being told is what how you should live your life. Me personally, in my own journey, the way my relationship's been with money, I want my life to feel complete and happy and where I am and who I'm around and who what I'm doing every day. And I come to the conclusion that money isn't it. It isn't the watches and, and years ago, like when when I did have nice things, it's very vacuous. You feel good for a couple of hours, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, and you're constantly looking for the next upgrade, the next new thing. And you fall into this cycle and this trap of always constantly wanting more and more and more. So I just re- I try to relinquish as much stuff as I can in my life and just try to live the simplest life I can. Um, and that makes me feel happy and content. Like doing stuff, like when I go and ride my bike in, in the mountains or I'll, I'll go running or swimming, and you, that, it doesn't cost me any money. But the joy and happiness it brings me as a person, like I don't earn that much money each year. Like, believe me, people you think when you sign these contracts with Nike and stuff like, you're like a football player and you earn millions. And I really don't. I really don't earn anything like that. But I honestly can say I am the happiest and most content I've ever been in my life with the least amount of stuff that I've ever probably had. And and it's all about the pleasures and joys of making sure that every day I get up, I'm really content and at at ease in what I'm about to do today. I don't look myself in the mirror. And if, if I did ever look myself in the mirror, and Steve Jobs said it, And for too many days consistently, you go, I don't feel happy in what I'm doing. Stop doing it because life is too short and it's too precious. And life is the most precious commodity that any of us will ever own. So why sacrifice life for things that realistically aren't really going to make you that happy when you can have more life experiences and more joy and pleasure in your life Mm -hmm. um, by spending more time with people that you love? And and, because then you don't need that much stuff in life to be happy. a lot of societies we've evolved because of we've been told that we need this stuff to make ourselves happy and we've really really done
0: yeah yeah totally in terms of as well putting back and you know being a positive influence on for example people who have had difficult environments in which they've grown up in taking the example of greenhouse how valuable is the kind of work that you do with a charity like that, or some of the other work you do in terms of going into prisons or schools or whatever, and making a a positive impact on other people's lives. How valuable is that to you?
2: Yeah. Like going back to when I was a kid, um, legacy. Now legacy was always intrinsically linked to me by wealth. It was always intrinsically linked into your reputation. What I'm going to be remembered for when I die, I want to be a good athlete because When I break X amount of world records and run ridiculously fast marathons, that's going to make me feel like that's going to be my legacy. When I die, I'm going to be remembered for doing that. And what I come to realize is actually legacy is about the impact that you have over other people's lives. Because when I'm gone, like realistically, times on a ball don't really mean much. But when I'm gone, if I've positively impacted over someone's life where their life is then better and their children's lives better. A legacy is like a living organism. It just keeps going on and on and on. If you have that experience with another human, another person, you have that interconnection that you've changed the trajectory of someone else's life. Now, I know it sounds, again, a little bit cheesy, but if I can stop just one person or just create an awareness in another person that I don't want to live my life like this, I want to do something else. Like if he's managed to do what he's done with his life and come from like the bottom of nowhere, like the deepest, darkest hole you could be physically buried in, and get to where I got to. And, and and Simon, I am no different to anyone else. The difference is with a lot of people, you just need to make the choice and go. I don't want this no more, and I'm going to find a way to not be in the person I am now. I want to be something else, and that is all I did. I just made a set of choices. I woke up one and said, I do not want to live this life no more. What can I do? What how how can I get out of this? And I found solutions to those problems. I was saying it to someone yesterday. When, when I was in prison, I was given an 89% chance when I got released I'd be back in prison within two years. That is the statistic they gave me. On a, on a, it's called an oasis. It's like they okay, put all these numbers into a computer system, like mm. your, your criminal records and your, your education level and if you've got a drug problem. And, and I beat the odds. But I knew I'd beat the odds because I was determined that that was not going to be my life. So to me, legacy is about having that positive impact over young people's lives and demonstrating to them it doesn't matter where you come from in life, it's where you end up that counts. And if one person just takes one thing out of my life and they don't end up making the same poor life choices that I did as a young person, and they look at my life and go, actually, if he had that talent in his body, imagine the talents I might have in my body at 14 right now, that if I use them and express them, I might be able to go and achieve something with my life that doesn't necessarily mean me wasting my life going down the wrong negative path.
0: I love that redefining legacy. It's easy to think of it in terms of, you know, a reputation, how you're going to be remembered, wanting to be idolized, having that big portrait, you know, in some important building somewhere. But actually, it's less about yourself is what you're saying. But actually, a legacy is about passing it on and impacting other people. And like I said, I love that a living organism, as you say. I think that's a lovely, fresh way of looking at legacy. Thank you, mate. Well, listen, John, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It really has. Your story is amazing. The example you show, the work you're now doing in terms of impacting other people and leaving a legacy. And even though your lessons are far out there because of the experiences you've had, actually, in terms of the value of money, the value of legacy, et cetera, all those things, actually, they're very relatable to anyone. So I just want to say thank you for coming on. And it's been just a joy listening to them and for sharing your lessons and just congratulate you for what you've achieved and how you've turned your life around it's it just is an incredible incredible story so thank you
2: very much thank you mate take care everyone
0: thanks very much for listening to this episode of don't turn with the score i really hope you enjoyed our conversation and i would of course be delighted to hear your thoughts ideas and questions do get in touch via my website simonmundy.com. I do really appreciate you listening. And if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say, I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye.